The Start On Demand. On demand. post pictures of your kids online we speak to a digital security expert who suggests that you might want to at least think about not posting those pics we learned today about the village project which is something that's going to aim to provide tiny homes on main street right next to thunderbird house to help shelter the homeless for i love to read month we had a fascinating conversation with author brett d hewson and what were the best or worst fashion trends of the 90s I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Monday, February 22nd podcast for The Start. McGarry McNabb took my brain a second to catch up with what I was looking at on the screen. I look up, I see 0.3. Where's the, uh, where's the minus yeah, Can you be minus zero? <laughs> minus, you just wanted to say it. It's yeah. minus something. It's just got to be. <laughs> Good morning, guys. How's it going, GMAC? Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Loren. Uh, not too bad. It was nice to wake up to a Winnipeg Jets victory. I went to bed, did not turn on the game last night. So it was very nice surprise to uh, learn that the Jets had come out on top of a 4-3 overtime win in Vancouver. Two wins this weekend. Yahoo! Not, not just a win. Finally, we get to see Pierre-Luc Dubois, and he uh, scores the overtime goal winner. So I think that's um, that was good news for everybody. It was nice to see him, and also just to know that, yeah, okay, all right. I like what I'm seeing. I like mm-hmm. what I'm hearing. Yeah, three points for Dubois in his debut, part two as I'm calling it, because, uh, you know, really a a truncated uh, debut uh, earlier, missed four games now with injuries, said he was really ready to go. And then, you know, we spent so much time (laughs) hyping the fact that the Jets have this incredible depth at center ice. Where does Dubois play last night? On the left wing with Mark Shifley uh, in the middle and Blake Wheeler on the right side. It's like saying we don't want to talk about our centers right now. We're going to move them over, and now there's no more debate. So let's leave it. (laughs) So coming up at 6.55, it's your Daily Jets update with Kelly Moore. And then at 7.55, the sounds of the game, in case you're like us and you missed the game. Loren, did you catch any of the game last night? I'm I'm basically, I have to admit, I tried to catch uh, parts or at least... um, duck out quickly and take a look at what's on the TV or listen on the radio and then head to bed. So I, I can, I can, um, my goal is to say I was in tune for some, if not all of the games. Some might be minutes, some might be hours. It depends. So 755, the sounds of the game. I had to listen to it and indeed it was very exciting. It made me wish I had stayed up to watch that game and listen to it, of course, on 680 CJOB. As well today, one of the things we're going to be talking about uh, at 737, to post pictures of your kids on social media. Do you do this or do you not do this? And Loren, why are we focusing on this today? Well, we talked to think, Brett, you and I, just a few weeks ago, even about posting our own pictures, right? And about the idea that in this age where uh, there's this facial recognition and different technology and identities being stolen, like as an adult, it sometimes has us thinking about twice, even if it's just with the apps, right? That we've sometimes may have used. What's that one that you had tried that t- uh, made you look younger and face older? Face app or whatever it was? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, like adults are doing it. Uh, uh, but then I've seen recent conversations over the past few weeks uh, amongst friends and, and different people that I know who have decided or made it clear that just so you know, I'm not posting pictures of my high schooler anymore, for example, because he's at the age where he's asked me not to, or I've chosen not to post pictures of this person because it's not their choice yet. And, and recently I had someone uh, who added a new member to their family and said that they decided not to post pictures of them until not just because they want that person to be able to make the decision on their own, but there's also just security questions and privacy questions and all sorts of things going on. And so it had me thinking like, huh, do I need to be rethinking the number of times I may or may not post things uh, with my kids on it. For example, I don't do it on my Instagram account because it's so public, but I have a private Facebook account. So, you know, like, are there different places that it might be safer to do so? So at 737, we're going to have that chat because it certainly had me thinking, Greg, I, I have thought that I maybe should be either talking to them about it or slowing it down, but I haven't really made any changes in that direction yet. My kids have their own accounts and they're private and uh, I go through it with them as to who they're following and who's following them. And I posted something uh, of them the other day and now this has really got me second guessing that decision and whether or not I might revamp my entire social media strategy when it comes to my kids, depending on this conversation. But you've really got me thinking and even about our th- ourselves. Uh, I mentioned last night, Brett, that whole notion of those apps that do age you. Like, are you essentially giving ammunition to scammers, those that want to take advantage of us, uh, maybe even five, six, seven, eight years from now? Are they compiling images are they aging us so that they have can create facial recognition accounts before I get an opportunity to do it? Yeah, and with the stuff that they can do right now with the, the you see it just uh, this deep fake technology where they you see these videos of, for example, the the Disney Plus show The Mandalorian they, that featured. If in case you haven't seen it, it featured a very popular character from the Star Wars universe, but the visual effects were not all that great. Someone decided to do a deep fake recut, and it looked better than the what the visual effects team produced for the show. So the stuff that they can do now is pretty crazy. So yeah, I don't use any of those face apps anymore, any of those filter things that you can do on Instagram. Um, And you're right, even just putting my picture out there makes me kind of scratch my head as to what am I exposing myself to. So looking forward to that conversation at 7.37. And as well today, we've got uh, some travel restrictions kicking in, Loren. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be honest, I'm a little bit confused because when Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau announced this about a month ago that they were going to put this quarantine into effect and that people were going to have to stay into a hotel. I think many of us uh, had made the assumption that that was sort of immediate. Uh, that's how it sounded at the moment. But they had to get their ducks in order. They had to get the testing at these hotels. And then they, they've they picked very specific hotels in these three, you know, the Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal landings where international flights now have to come in. And so there's rules around where you're going to go, where you have to stay. And then, of course, there are questions from people um, about whether or not that should apply to them. What if I'm leaving the country for a family emergency? International student, does that get an exemption? Are there, are there going to be uh, exemptions for certain circumstances? Or does everybody have to come back and pay potentially thousands of dollars to stay in a hotel until they get a clear COVID test? And so that go- went into effect at midnight. So as of today, this is happening for anyone returning from travel. And it also comes at the same time, Greg, where Ipsos has a pullout as to whether people want to travel in the first place this year. Is this one of those things that would make you think twice? They've told us not to travel. Sure. You know, if, if it's not essential, you can't, you shouldn't be going. 
Now they put this restriction effect. Well, who can afford to come back after they've already probably put all their money out for this, uh, you know, a potential vacation and then stay in a hotel for three, four, five, maybe even a week? That really adds to that cost. And so it's not, to me, it's not just about whether I'm comfortable traveling, period, just because of COVID. This restriction would change anything until that's gone. That doesn't make sense, I think, for most of us. Over the last year, if you haven't realized that things can change on a moment's notice with regard to your status as a Canadian around the world and the fact that you might need to stay put, you might need to come home and quarantine, you might be now forced to stay in a hotel, you're not paying attention. And uh, listen, uh, ignorance is bliss sometimes, uh, not in this circumstance. Here's the tweet from the Boston Bruins. It reads simply, presenting the 1990, that's scratched out, 2021 Boston Bruins. GMAC, what's happening in this colorful tweet? (laughs) So the players are strutting uh, towards the playing surface at Lake Tahoe. The NHL had two games there over the weekend. We'll talk about those later with Bob Irving. They were a little bit of a fiasco. But these outfits, these ski outfits that the Bruins decided on as their pre- and post-game outfits are absolutely spectacular. Neon colors, bright colors, onesies, uh, one-piece ski uh, uniform or outfits, uh, they're absolutely awesome. So it had us wondering and talking and thinking about the fashion of the 90s. What was the best? What was the worst? What caught your attention? What did you love? What did you hate? 204-780-6868. Text us for your chance to win a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. The best or worst fashions of the 1990s. So let's go around the horn here. We've got Jeff Braun. We've got Skylar Peters in for Cam Poitras. we got Jeff Fortier and uh, Jeff Brown, why don't we start with you, sir? Well, for me, I, I got lucky in the 90s, and I was thrilled when, uh, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana hit it big because they just gave everyone license to wear jeans, a T-shirt, and a flannel shirt over top, and that was my uniform for 10 or 15 years probably, and it was just comfortable and so easy, and you didn't, didn't have to think about it or even really be concerned about what you look like at all. Lovely. Practical, efficient, easy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, Skylar Peters, how old are you again? Uh, I was born in 1997, so I missed a lot of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for you then, it would Onesies! Be... <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so for you, obviously, this won't come from practical experience, but when you look at stuff from the 90s, what sticks out for you? Yeah, well, shout out to the Bruins, because uh, that's the second time they've dressed up um, for an outdoor game. The 16 Winter Classic uh, was at Notre Dame against Chicago, and they all wore like 1920s old timey suits and, oh, and nice. hats. And yeah, so search up that photo later; it's hilarious. Um, yeah, so good on them. Uh, yeah, I just the like the 90s hats are amazing. Some of like the sports ones, like you know, like the 1996 NBA champion, like Chicago Bulls hats or something, are just like they're so colorful and like they seem to be so like simple now and like understated but uh, they didn't really care what they you know put on some shirts and hats in the 90s so i love picking up uh, some of those uh, once in a while like if you can find them on uh, like facebook marketplace or something like that and i do the same thing jeff was just talking about just throw it on with a, a pair of jeans um but the golf outfits in the 90s were crazy like i don't understand how some of those guys walk around with those pants that are like 
18 sizes too big for their legs. Like you see some of the vintage Tiger Woods clips. Like, how do you like it looks so unathletic to be wearing those? And now uh, Dustin Johnson last night was wearing a, a hoodie on the course at the uh, Genesis Invitational. So uh, times are changing. Oh, it was cold uh, yeah. at that golf course yesterday. Yeah, the baggy, baggy stuff. That was for me uh, simultaneously best and worst. Uh, an example of a best and worst fashion trend of the 1990s, baggy everything. And I specifically remember the Arkansas Razorbacks in the early 1990s at March Madness. The baggy basketball shorts had become a thing, and they kicked it up a notch. And they, they were basically like, it was like the size of a kilt on each leg, but they were so comfortable to play in. So I think that's why the baggy stuff was a thing, Skylar, because they were actually really comfortable and uh, made it kind of easy. They were flowy. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if that's you the could word. breathe in them. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots of room. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Loren? Oh, God, so many things are awful that I hope never come back. Vests. Remember when vests were like worn as shirts? They weren't even over top of a shirt. You would just put a vest on. And I'd wear that to school, like one of those, like a look like a fancy underneath the suit vest. Yeah. that would just be a vest. Uh, the button-up shirt that would be buttoned right to the top, like Parker Lewis from the TV show. And then, of course, the jeans that were safety pinned all the way up to the top of the knee for <laughs> for some unfathomable reason. To- totally unnecessary. There was zero need for it. But you'd have all those safety pins in your jeans. And then if I can just add the button fly, may it rest in hell. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hell. Love the button fly. No, and you always forget one. And then if you really have to go and you're rushing in the washing, we're like, why are there so many buttons? <laughs> no, it can go. It can stay in the 90s or whatever era that was. <laughs> uh, I liked the button fly too, but yeah, it was not very practical. Not at all. Mackling, what about you? Well, uh, for me, it's the wild thing where from Wally Wolachenko from Winnipeg, Transcona guy actually ran for Transcona City Council in the last election, and he had a spot up on the shores of Lake Winnipeg, up in Gimli, and then uh, years later, I think near Grand Beach, and his neon apparel was outstanding. I would never, ever wear it again, but in the early 1990s, it was a staple of my wardrobe, and uh, in fact, I think I wore, I lent out those pants for a, a retro night to a friend of mine, and I, I've Yet to receive them back. You still had so, them? Why did you still have them? Never mind. They were in your garage. Were they? There you go, McNabb. You know me well enough to know that uh, just when you throw something out is when you realize, I had that last week. I need it today, but I threw it away last week. So, Ford, Jeff Forte, we got 30 seconds. Throw away nothing. Oh, well, you know, I was, I was a kid, so I'm trying to remember... Were the button-up um, track pants, were those a 90s thing, or is that a 2000s? Ooh, like the, the breakaways, the tearaways? Yeah. yeah, the tearaways. I want to say that's later, Forte, but those were pretty sweet. I liked those. And I'm trying to remember <laughs> that the shorts, that the, the pants that turned to shorts, was that a 90s thing? I had Tristan, some of those Tristan in the early Jones still wears those. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm, I'm trying to remember 90s fashion, and it's, it's, it's going past my head, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember things when I was a kid. Hey, those pants would be good on today for TFJ. Like, you know, it's going to be like seven degrees at noon. Hey, yes, it's, throw it's, it's pants off. and shorts. It's two outfits yeah, in one. It's perfect. very practical. Perfect. So here's the deal. 204-780-6868. Send us a text for your chance to win a Santa Lucia pizza $20 gift card. The best and or worst fashions of the 1990s. And if you've got a pick to send us, that would be spectacular.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we are asking you at 204-780-6868 to send us a text about the best and or worst fashions of the 1990s. We've got a $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza up for grabs. We'll give that away just after 9.15. You should know how this works by now. If you want the gift card, you got to tell us a story uh, that pertains. But we are getting a couple of votes here for the Hypercolor T-shirt. Greg, did you ever have a Hypercolor shirt? <laughs> did not. I had completely forgot these things existed. Uh, they're pretty cool, actually. Did you ever no. have one, Loren? Yes, I did. And they're not cool because they heat up in the spots, <laughs> obviously, where you're hot. And so it's like, hey, everybody, this shirt turns from blue to pink when I'm sweating. And would you like to see where I'm sweating? Oh, it can show you exactly. I'm not really sure why we would want that in life. It's embarrassing enough when you're sweating without having been, oh, you're tie-dyeing it up over there. <laughs> you uh, feeling a little stressed? Did you climb that stairs? What's going on? Armpits? It's probably one of those things where they think about it. You know, it, it's one of those things where, like, some marketing genius comes up with his idea Right, it's just a good idea in theory, but then in practice, you later learn. Oh, here's why this doesn't work. <laughs> they must have sold millions of them over the course of the 1990s. How about uh, we were talking about hats? Uh, Phil sent uh, me an email. I think maybe she sent it to all three of us uh, with regard to the Adidas and the Adidas look with the sweat jacket and stuff. And I asked him if he owned the LL Cool J hat. <laughs> the brimless hats there were uh, sort of like a bucket hat they had the sort of the panel adidas terry cloth lined hats back in the day and then it was it kangle the kangaroo style the the sort of the it had a peak on it but you wore it backwards do you remember that one I think Samuel L. Jackson made that one pretty popular if LL Cool J didn't also wear it. I'd have to see it. It had the little kangaroo logo on it, and the only way you could see the kangaroo is if you wore it backwards with the with the beak to the back. Okay. The to the back. So you had to wear it backwards to show off the logo. Correct, Amundo. 204-780-6868. Tell us a story for your chance to win that $20 gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. We'll give that away just after 9.15. On the subject of the baggy clothes, I remember I had some baggy jeans, like just ridiculously baggy jeans. I had a pair of black jeans that the the cuffs were 30 inches wide each. No! no. Yes! Why? <laughs> I wanted the baggier the better. It was just, yeah. it was, it was, they were comfy. They looked ridiculous, but they were comfortable. You know, it's funny because when skinny jeans came in and the low rise and all the rest, you, I hated them because it was everything was so tight. And now I'm hearing baggy jeans are making a comeback. And by hearing, I mean reading. I don't have inside look into the runways of New York. But, I don't want that back either. No, no, I, I get it. It's just not a good look. It's comfortable, but it's not the best look. So keep those texts coming. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. One of our listeners having some fun this morning on the 90s fashions, suggesting that I used to wear my jeans backwards and shirts like crisscross. I went to school and my teacher was like, are you dressed backwards? So I asked this listener, were you the Mac Daddy or the Daddy Mac? 
And <laughs> they say, I was the daddy of the Mac Daddies. Warming up, Brett. This is what I was born to do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Some of them tried to CJOB, but can't 680 like this. <laughs> I love it. So then I suggested, don't miss the bus. If you do, I'm sure that'll be something that you'll never, ever, ever do again. So keep those texts coming. Best or worst 90s fashions. Tell us a story that goes with it for your chance to win a Santa Lucia pizza. $20 gift card coming up just after 9.15. Also, Loren, I see that Dr. Brent Rusin is going to be speaking today at uh, 11 a.m. along with the Sport, Culture, and Heritage Minister, Kathy Cox. Do we know what that's about? Well, they've just put in that it's basically an expansion of their stay home or safe at home program. And so you might recall a few months ago, they put that in place where you can go online. And for example, I'm on the website right now, if you type in safe at home mb.ca, you can then connect to different exercise classes or virtual events uh, like a concert or old time music festivals. It's had social services support. There's stuff on there for kids um, or someone might be reading a book for kids or different games and stuff. And so I'm not sure what this expansion will entail, although I'm curious if this is a signaling of the possibility that basically the guidelines, the restrictions that we're living under may be here for for a little longer, you know, extend into March and what have you. If they're expanding this online program, it's basically saying this is the way we're going forward for the foreseeable future with many of these activities just being online. So that is coming up at 11 a.m. Coming up at 7.54, we've got the sounds of the game. But in the meantime, we want to have a conversation right now about social media and our question of the day at cjob.com is brought to you by Mr. Furness. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furness at 204-832-6243. Do you post pictures of your kids online? So far, 89% at cjob.com say nope. 11% say I do. Maybe I shouldn't. No votes yet for yes all the time. Cast or vote cjob.com. We've also put it on Twitter at 680cjob, Loren. Yeah, we're asking this this morning because I was saying to you guys over the weekend that uh, I've noticed over the past few months several friends or a handful of friends on Facebook or other social media platforms that are saying that they're, they've decided to either no longer post pictures of their kids or maybe have no plans to post them, period, at least until those kids maybe grow up and, and give their permission. So in some cases, it might be moms or dads who are simply saying they think they're kids should have the vote on this, you know, on whether or not that photo should be posted, because we often hear these things live forever once it gets posted on the to the internet. But there's also those who are talking about maybe the security concerns in this age of facial recognition. And so we want to figure out what we need to consider, not just as moms as dads, but as anyone who's putting their photo out there on a regular basis. Ritesh Kotak is a digital security expert and, of course, a regular contributor to CGOB and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for taking the time for this, because like I said, I, I had I'd seen a few people over the months make this decision. I'm curious, from your experience, is this a growing trend for people to say, hang on, I at the very least shouldn't be posting pictures of my kids who are underage? I think so. And there's even a term for it. It's called sharenting. And there's different stats out there. But the average parent who actually does post pictures of their children posts about 1,500 times by the time that child turns five. So you can imagine all that treasure trove of data that's particularly out there about a about a child it's essentially about an individual who cannot consent you know does not have a say in the matter and the problem is is that and and you mentioned this is that there's no such thing as delete on the internet once it's there it is essentially archived forever so when you have that sort of level of permanency what can happen well first of all if it can't be it can't be deleted 
Um, it, you know, people will have access to that image. Um, we've seen uh, deep fakes on the rise. And as you mentioned, the use of facial recogni uh, recognition technology in society might actually be a huge hindrance in the future to that child if they want to get into certain types of employment or um, or there's something related to their identity, identity theft. Um, you know, uh, we can think about some really extreme scenarios. And there's a term for that as well. It's called digital kidnapping. So, yeah, this is a really serious issue. Uh, Ritesh, you sort of answered my question that I had uh, jotted down to ask you with regard to any way of clawing this back. And it sounds like the answer is a definite no. And so then we get into this whole realm of making decisions on our children's behalf because it's one thing to make dumb decisions in terms of sharing our personal information with the world for ourselves, but the, the ramifications of doing it for your kids seem to be more far-reaching than we'd even imagined. Absolutely. Now, believe it or not, in France, there's actually children that have sued their parents over this and we've seen other cases like this so there might be some future liabilities um, if you're a parent so just be careful um, but here here's the thing is that you, you're right there's um, there's a lot of things that we don't know about the future and one of them is how much technology is actually going to progress and the and the and the issues that it's going to bring if we were having this conversation 10 years ago or 15 years ago would we have ever thought that images would be used to create deep fakes or facial recognition technology would be deployed in some cases even by the state um, and we've seen a lot of issues that have happened with that you know false positives um, people obviously losing their privacy um, and the aggregation of data so it's not just one image that gets put up it could be several images and all those images have what is called metadata that's behind them essentially digital signatures um, it can tell us location it could tell us what type of camera was used but it could also tell us the date and time of when that picture was taken um, not when it was posted but when it was taken and when you have that type of data and you start aggregating it you start getting a story on that individual where they live where they work where they go to school all that information and that could all be used by essentially criminals um, to make your life a living nightmare so should we stop posting pictures of ourselves or our kids online? So that's a that's an interesting question. Um, my thing is, you just got to understand when you put something up on social media, you you lose control almost immediately. Here's the reality: people are still going to be posting pictures. So my recommendation to parents who are still going to post pictures is, you don't need to post them publicly. Um, when you post an image, uh, if you want to share it with specific people, for example, grandpa, grandma, you can actually specify the individuals who would actually see those images or the group of images, uh, the group of individuals who would see those images. The second tip is don't put a picture of your child as your display photo or as a um, um, as your cover photo, because the reason for that is those images are almost always public on the majority of platforms. So if you're going to do it, there are ways of minimizing risk. However, I would recommend not doing it at all. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of people out there that think, well, I've got the privacy settings set, Ritesh, or I've, I've, I'm only on my Instagram. It's private. It's only for people that I allow to come on. And so they think they're doing the right thing, but when in fact it might still be far more public than they might be aware of. Absolutely. And remember, you can always screenshot images. Um, there's always the ability to share posts. So when you start thinking about that and you think about the multiplier effect, 
just think about how much exposure that image is going to get. You might just share it with a small group of people, but before you know it, the entire world has access to it. I don't know. You know, this is just so difficult to, to dial it all in, Ritesh, because uh, let's face it, when we started getting on Facebook, I guess it's 13, 14 years ago now, it was to connect with people. It was supposed to be a good thing, right? And we didn't realize that that we would quickly become the product. We would quickly become what was marketed and our personal information would be so coveted the way it is to this point. Absolutely. Data is essentially the new fuel. And, 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 I, and I always say, like, if you're not paying for the product, guess what? You are the product. Now, the thing is, is that, you know, technology will evolve. So it might have been done for a good purpose, a novel purpose in the beginning. But essentially, then that data gets weaponized and it gets commercialized in the future. So it might not be the intent today, but we don't know what the intent is going to be tomorrow now i know a lot of people say well there's privacy laws there's legislation there's all these things but the internet is a global place and what we've seen also is a lot um, platforms saying um you know what canada we're not going to actually abide by your your rules or your laws why because we're headquartered in another country and that's where um, we'll adhere to those laws but guess what those countries the reason they headquarter there is because they have very lax laws or no laws at all when it comes to regulating internet platforms so the world has gone global um and this is again these multi-jurisdictional issues are going to continue to be issues so we just have to kind of be thinking of before thinking and go on the assumption that the second you post something it's going to be made private it's going to be made public even though it might be private at one point and then you got to ask yourself how could this be used against me or against my children in the future. Ritesh Kodak, digital security expert and regular contributor to 680 CJOB, joining us live on the start. Ritesh, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, cast your vote on the question of the day at cjob.com and on Twitter at 680 CJOB. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we are asking you this morning about the best and worst 90s fashions. Text us at 204-780-6868. Tell us a story for your chance to win a Santa Lucia Pizza $20 gift card. Shannon ran the 90s fashion gauntlet. She says, well, I graduated in 97, so I feel like I had it all. Pinning my jeans, wearing the safety pins up the legs of your jeans. I begged my parents for a pair of Ikea lock-up jeans that had a lock instead of a button. Greg Kay earlier referencing that he knows some people who had accidents wearing those jeans because they couldn't get the lock open. Uh, cotton Ginny shirts, eight ball jackets, flare jeans, and Doc Martens. Looking back, it's all a bit embarrassing. LOL. Hey, nothing wrong with Doc Martens. And if Putty can pull off the eight ball jacket, why not? The, is that like a bomber style jacket? Yeah. With the sleeves? Yeah. Like I remember all the high school jackets then were the leather sleeves. Yeah. Well, the melted melted leather jackets. Yes. I'm on the volleyball team. My name's Loren. Play volleyball. I'm in 4-H. I like math. It's like all listed on the side of your. It was like having your resume on your sleeve. (laughs) It was so weird. (laughs) So we'll give away that Santa Lucia pizza gift card just after 9.15 and after 9 o'clock more on the Village Project and the development of uh, tiny homes that are going to be designed to help uh, Winnipeg's homeless. But in the meantime, it is just after 
8.30 on a Monday. No shortage of sports happenings over the weekend to chat about, so let's get down right down to it. The voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Greg, joins us right now. Yeah, good morning, Bob. I am then. I am not. Taking a break from Twitter, Irving joins us now. <laughs> morning, Bob. <laughs> good morning, you guys. Where, where's yeah. that whole Twitter thing? Uh, where does that sit right now? Are you taking a break or are you, are you doubling down? Are you, you, you're reloading. Well, I'd say I'm indecisive. I uh, I started a bit of a Twitter mayhem on the weekend <laughs> sure Sim- w- with a simple little tweet. Here's what I just so people know. Uh, and it was Saturday night, and I'm watching the Toronto Montreal NHL game. And I said, the Habs defensemen are solid, but name me one Montreal forward you would take ahead of Shifley, Wheeler, Connor, or Ehlers of the Jets. And then I said, and I might throw in Dubois and Paul Stasny. Just say and discuss among yourselves. Well, uh, you know, I throw stuff like that out there just to create discussion, and I knew there'd be some disagreement. But uh, And I would say the vast majority of people, you know, liked my tweet and agreed with it. But some of the pushback, I presume, from Montreal fans to a large degree was, you know, you're out to lunch, you don't know what you're talking about. And they cited Brendan Gallagher, Josh Anderson, and Tyler Toffoli as three players they would take ahead of virtually all of these Jets which I found to be ridiculous. And so we, we, we started going back and forth. And I've never really done this on Twitter before where I respond to everything. And it got a little nasty at times, and I don't like that. I mean, I think Twitter's it's for fun, and, you know, we should never take it very seriously. And it's just a matter of offering an opinion about something, you know. And then the, a lot of people got after Blake Wheeler. Uh, and the fact that he's in decline and all the rest of it. And he's Wheeler isn't playing up to the standard we expect around here. Although last night he had three points as the Jets beat Vancouver 4-3 in overtime, and I thought he had his one of his best games of the season. And I think he's still a very effective player, and I'm not sure I'd trade him for those three guys, any of those three guys in Montreal, although age would factor in. Wheeler's almost 35, and they're somewhat younger. Anyway, uh and on and on it went, and then at one point I said, okay, that's it, I'm going to take a break, and then some guy tweeted something, and I had to respond to that. <laughs> I fell into the Twitter trap, I guess, to a degree, but no, I am taking a break now until I decide I'm not. Well, fair enough. <laughs> so the goat got goaded on uh, Twitter a little bit uh, yesterday, and and it was very entertaining to, to watch. I, I thought a couple of times about standing up for you, and then I realized, what are you doing? Bob Irving doesn't need uh, anybody to watch his back. So two Jets wins over the weekend, Bob. Five Manitoba teams at the Scotties. Two outdoor NHL games on the shores of Lake Tahoe. Let's start with the Jets. They won 2 nothing. Friday night in Vancouver, then battled back from a 2 nothing deficit. Last night went ahead 3-2 and then eventually came out on top with that 4-3 overtime win. What did you like about Pierre-Luc Dubois' debut part two? Well, he looks like the kind of player that uh, Kevin Cheveldayoff talked about when he made the trade for Patrick Liney. He looked like it last night. He's, you know, he's a big, strong guy. The goal he scored in overtime... You know, not a lot of players could have scored that goal because he used his size and strength and power to get around a Vancouver defenseman and just jam the puck in. He's obviously got terrific hands. Now, playing with Shifley and Wheeler didn't hurt, uh, but he had three points, a couple of goals. You know, we, we know what his history is, and he was a terrific junior. He was a real high draft pick. He's a very talented player, and I think the Jets and their fans have a lot to be excited about re his future with the club and then last night they were down two nothing in the first period against vancouver and they were completely outplayed the canucks beat them to the puck they out hustled them uh you know they just controlled the first period but to the jets everlasting credit 
uh, they came back strong and won the game in overtime. And I think that's a great sign. The more I see of this team, the more I like. You know, I think their defense is getting better. Although Pullman got hurt last night, and you know, I would be a big loss because I think he's one of their really strong guys back there. And and Hellebuck, of course, is Hellebuck. And Brassois had a shutout the night before, and so they're eleven six and one, eleven six and one in this shortened season. They've set themselves up very nicely. Still a long way to go, but they're looking good. Let me put it that way. Now two games with Montreal, uh, one of the top teams in the North Division so far this year, and those will tell us more about the Jets. Also looking good for at least a really short period, Bob, was the uh, outdoor game at Lake Tahoe. I guess there was a couple of games, and the the scenery was astounding. The lake, of course, not remotely near frozen over, just completely wide open. Mountains, it was a beautiful scene, but uh, there was a nine-hour delay for the one game, I think, and then two of the games, which were supposed to happen during the day, happened at night. And so is this a miss? Is it time for the NHL to say they need to pick places where that's just not going to happen with such regularity? Yeah, I think they took a bit of a risk uh, going to Lake Tahoe because, you know, the weather was above freezing and then the sun shone. Imagine that, the sun shone. And I don't know if the NHL had factored that in or not, but that's what caused the problem on Saturday. It melted the ice during a daytime game. Uh, And then they played a period and postponed the game until it started 9 o'clock at night uh, for the final two periods when, you know, the sun had gone down and, and the ice froze. So I think they took a bit of a risk in going to to Lake Tahoe. You know, these outdoor games are moneymakers. If you play an outdoor game with 100,000 people in attendance, as they've done often at these big stadiums at $100 a ticket, that's a $10 million gate. And that's why they do it. Uh, And I think uh, the Tahoe one, obviously there were no fans there, so it would have been really an expensive proposition for the NHL. But it did draw some attention. There's no question about it. And the picturesque, uh, part of it is is just spectacular. Anybody who's been and we drove through Lake Tahoe a few years ago on our way to Reno, Nevada, and it is truly one of the most beautiful places on the earth. And you could see that in the pictures over the weekend. So, you know, I, I, it, it was probably the worst result of their outdoor games because of the delays and the problems they had and the fact they couldn't have any fans. But I don't think they're going to stop doing it. I think they feel it's been successful and they'll give it another try. Scotty's Tournament of Hearts, meanwhile, is underway in Calgary. We've got two of the three Manitoba teams, or two of three Manitoba teams are undefeated. That's uh, Team Canada by Kerry Anderson, Team Fleury, one of the three wildcard teams being skipped by Chelsea Carey, both 3-0. and And uh, the greatest of all time, six-time Canadian champion Jennifer Jones is 2-1. and So it's a decent start for the majority of the uh, five Manitoba teams, Bob. Yeah, I think we can expect that Team Flurry, which is skipped by Chelsea Carey, who's a good Manitoban at 3-0, and and Jen Jones at 2-1 and in their pool. They're going to make the playoffs. So is Carey Anderson at 3-0. and You know, she is the defending Ch- Scotty's champion. Those three teams are going to be in the playoffs. The top four in each of the two nine-team pools get into the playoffs. Mackenzie Zacharias at 1-2 and two, and Beth Peterson at 1-3. It's going to be touch and go. I think they've got an uphill battle. But the, the teams we expect it to be strong, Jen Jones, Team Flurry, and Kerry Anderson, are, are delivering. And for those of us who enjoy watching curling, uh, the last few days have been really, really neat. What are you doing tonight? Or tomorrow night, actually, Bob? Uh, if you're well, going to be off Twitter, you should probably do some radio, huh? Yeah, wait a minute. I haven't made a decision on the Twitter thing. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be uh, on the radio on CGOB tomorrow night hosting a Blue Bomber Winter Special from 6.30 to 9, two and a half hours, and you'll hear from Wade Miller, Michael Shea, Kyle Walters, Adam Big Hill, Andrew Harris, 
Jackson, Jeffcoat, Zach Calaris, I could go on and on. It'll be never-ending Blue Bomber talk. We'll get you caught up, find out what these guys have been doing. Jackson, Jeffcoat can tell us about the winter storm in Texas and the effect it's had on him. And I look forward to it tomorrow night. Bob Irving joining us live on 680 CJOB. Bob, thank you very much, and Godspeed on Twitter. (laughs) I might need it. Thanks. Fight on, Bob. Fight on. Don't let the trolls beat you down. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, a question of the day at cjob.com is brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace at 204-832-6243. The question is, do you post pictures of your kids online? And your options are yes all the time, I do, maybe I shouldn't, and nope. And so far at cjob.com, we've got 5% who say yes all the time, 17% say I do, maybe I shouldn't, and then 79% say nope. We've also put that up on Twitter at 680cjob, and it's a similar a gap, but slightly smaller. They've got 65% who say nope, 17% say yes all the time, and 18% say I do, maybe I shouldn't. And uh, as a kid, I think that if I were growing up right now and my mom was always posting pictures of me online, I think I would just be annoyed, you know, like the whole embarrassed by your parents kind of thing. I don't, I don't know how it I would feel about that. might be depending on your age, do you think? Like, or, you know, because I... Like when they're younger, you could ask them, but they wouldn't get it, right? And yeah. So you wait. You might wait till an age when they can understand the post or understand that you're sharing that w- with friends. But then you have to point out that it's 400 friends, or depending on how many people you have, right, on those platforms. So I'm curious, what kind of conversations you like? Why do you even start with your kids about getting their permission and, and making sure they understand what it all means? Well, you know, I mentioned. I got my social insurance number at 15, and I probably spent 35 years of my life making sure I gave nobody that number except my employer and people, like if I do my income tax, uh, protecting that thing with my life and then just give away all this other information for free on social media. And I'm kind of mad at myself about that. And I'm also mad at the at the fact that I'm already burning some of the fodder for when the kids get married, because that's when those pictures are supposed to come out, those embarrassing pictures. You're kind of wasting them if you're posting them on social media right now. So you're, uh, you're, you're uh, kind you of sucking yourself. If that does away with those stupid montages that people do at weddings, I would be perfectly oh, fine Oh, you don't like those? They oh, go on like for like that. 20 minutes. Like, it should be one song and done. There's a reason why songs are in the radio are four minutes, because that's basically the, the attention span. I don't want to watch 20 minutes worth of that's musical montages. Do one story on just the story of this couple. I don't care about your life story. I don't care about the groom's life story. Oh, wow. I just want to watch the one song, the one montage, and that's it. Brett, you got to see the picture of someone with the spaghetti on their head when they're don't one, care. and then don't the other care. picture don't of the kid in the bathtub. Don't invite Brett to any yeah. kids' oh boy, weddings. Oh I feel like, like leave the bar open one right least. now. I'm creating a PowerPoint right now that I'm going to just blast out to you, Brett, that's going to have Greg and I's life stories in it. I'm not going to watch it. You're watching it. You're going to have to force me to watch it. You're going to have to lock me up in a room where they've closed the bar, and I have no choice but to sit there and drink table wine while I watch these ridiculous montages. (laughs) You've really put a lot of thought into this. (laughs) I have. (laughs) It's disturbing. (laughs) Well, because a buddy of mine was tasked with creating one once. So I told him, like, make it no more than five minutes. 
He's, How long did it end up? I can't remember. I think he actually kept it to seven. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, he was able to keep it a bit more concise. But, uh, well, Eve asked a good question. What if it's, you know, the one that's in the background? Because sometimes I've seen people do it on mm. the roof of the tent, in the white tent. So it's just playing constantly. So you look at it if you feel like it or it's going on on like a big screen in the back of the room, maybe near the bar. That's okay. You, right. It, but you just don't want to be forced to sit there and like can't go get your drink. Is the, can't the, talk. Can't make any noise. Got to watch this 19-minute life story. Is the bigger issue that the bar is closed at this point in time, Brett? It's, it's well, partly, but it's just, I feel like, you know, after listening to the, it's the combination of the, the, the sappy songs and the, <laughs> I don't know, it just, it drags on. I just feel like, get to the it's point. It's one I of think my part favorite of it is parts because, of a wedding. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. It's not the the idea of it. It's just the length of how long these things go. I remember once I went and I think they had six songs and I thought that I've checked out. Like I just, I want to go home right now. I don't even care. So I don't like it. Let's take, take your a turn. stupid montage wow. and let it, to use your parlance, Loren, let it rest in hell. So. Yeah. Yeah. Not that yeah, I'm yeah, going to be able so... to say to change his mind, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut at this point in time. I can't even remember what I was so angry about two hours ago that led me to use that phrase. The button fly. Oh, the button fly, right. Useless piece of clothing. <laughs> Got it. Totally Anger's back. Levi's 501 Blues. Come on, button fly. It's awesome. Uh, Greg, or was it, uh, who was it? No, it was Wayner who said that his grandma mm-hmm. sewed him yes. a pair of MC Hammer pants to wear at the preteen dance. They were bright pink and the dance floor was all lit up. The 1992-93 preteen dances at Buchanan Community Center. Oh, good old Crestview boy. Good job, Wayner. <laughs> good job, Wayner's grandma. That's a sweet grandma. That's cool. Pink hammer pants. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, I just got to read this text message on the subject of social media, only because it made me laugh, and it sounds like something I would probably do. I'm not going to name this listener, though, just uh, in case they get in trouble. This person says, I had a friend's wife have a baby. She constantly posted so many pictures of the kid, it got annoying. Like, we get it. You have a baby. I unfriended her because of it. <laughs> now, is that from you? Are you just operating under a pseudonym? <laughs> or is that actually from a listener, Brad? It's from an actual listener. <laughs> I always say people must feel about the pictures I post of my kids the way I feel about their posts. Pictures of them at the gym, working on my back today, and then it's a back shot, you know, working on my biceps today, mm. and I'm like, it's the same thing. You know, we all have our thing, because we don't, it's not where we're at, and so then you don't really want to see it. Yeah, so you can text us to a 478-0-6868. By the way, last chance to get in on the Santa Lucia Pizza $20 gift card on the best and worst fashions of the 1990s, and tell us a story for your chance to win. But right now, we want to focus on a new project, which will hopefully go a tiny way to helping solve the homeless crisis in Winnipeg. So it's called the Village Project, and it's a 22-unit village basically aiming to create immediate, safe, and private housing for individuals who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness in Winnipeg. We know we had that fire last week, Greg, that took the life of one of the members of Winnipeg's homeless community. We also know we have people who are often choosing to spend the night in what was some really cold temperatures up until today or this weekend in bus shelters. And so this project is being developed after consultation with some of the people who are living in those encampments as well as Indigenous leaders. The planning is underway, which is led by Mama Way Centre, and it also 
has the support of six other Indigenous organizations. And again, this village, the village, is going to take over, if it all goes well, this vacant lot that is, if you can picture it, in between Thunderbird House on Maine and then Salvation's Army's Centre of Hope uh, just behind it. That's right. Co-chair of Thunderbird House board is Damon Johnson. Damon joins us now. Good morning, Damon Johnson. How are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. How are yourself? We're doing very well. Thanks for taking some time to shed some light on this project. Uh, it's exciting and something that we, we sort of referenced the last week when we were having the discussion about this notion of micro-housing or rapid housing as a, a potential solution for homelessness in Winnipeg. Obviously, 22 units is not going to solve the problem. It's a, it's a baby step, but how quickly could this project take shape and, and be functional, Damon? Yes, well, we're just waiting to hear from the federal government on our application for funding with them, and then that'll give us the go-ahead. And uh, the uh, some of the work is uh, on the la- uh, you know the environmental assessment of the land is already o- going to be occurring, and so yeah, we're pretty much ready to go once we get the uh, the last funding approval. So let's talk about that funding. I think I've seen a three million dollar price tag attached to this, Damon. Uh, what's the breakdown per unit, and, and help me understand that number? Because people always they like they always like the ideas, but they always ask the question about cost. Yes, yes. Well, it's actually a very reasonable cost for the units. They're about sixty k each, sixty thousand each. Uh, but then we've got some additional amenities that we're adding. There's going to be a little uh, small lodge uh, for uh, sort of a social space for the people that live there, and then a space for the workers who are going to be supporting them on site. There's also going to be some storage space set up for the units, uh, and then uh, then we may uh, add a sweat lodge uh, to, to the one that uh, currently exists there. So this is part of a broader solution, but is it the type of solution those who will use this housing are asking for? Uh, oh, yes, we truly appreciate that. I mean, uh, they're smaller units, but they're you know, I've, I've I've seen the renderings of them, and I would live in one myself. I mean, they're they're very very nice, uh, you know, and they're very durable because uh, the outside is a steel container, right? So uh, they're good that way. Uh, the we'll work with the tenants. They can uh, paint things on the outside of their dwelling. You know, they can make it their own, eh? And then uh, in the center of the village will be a, a fire pit so that they can sit around the campfire in the evenings with each other. And it says they'll have a full cadre of support workers. Uh, we'll be able to do pretty much any kind of intervention we need to do. As you know, uh, you know, people in the homeless or people living on the street, some of them uh, you know, work, struggle with addictions both and mental health and both the drugs and alcohol. So, uh, you know, part of the... In the model, I think we're going to have a bit of a mix of individuals living there, uh, some who who are really on the you know strong side of having to deal with those things, and then others in between. So you know they can become like a family and be an example to each other. And uh, and uh, you know the ones that are a little healthier will encourage those that are less so. You know, so it's, I think it's a it's a very innovative approach. Uh, you know, designed to, you know, meet the individual needs of each person that will be living in a given unit. 
Damon, we often hear that terminology, meet uh, these people where they are, and it sounds as though that's the approach here. But just give us a, just a little bit of an understanding about how some other either shelter alternatives or even uh, micro-housing or other housing alternatives tend to have some very strict rules attached to them. And so why is it important that that these individuals be allowed to to sort of a, to get the shelter without any hard and fast rules attached to them necessarily? Well, it's, it's, I think it's truly understanding where they're, you know, where they are and they are, each of them is an individual is unique. And so, you know, you can't really uh, address issues that they may have in their life unless you go there, unless you're prepared to go there and unless you're prepared to, uh, you know, provide those opportunities for them to change their lives if that's their desire. You know what I mean? You can't force uh, any kind of programming on these individuals. We recognize that. But there will be a selection process. Uh, we've got, you know, an excellent group of organizations with all of the capacity necessary to do that. Organizations like the Aboriginal Health and Wellness Centre uh, will work with our, some of our non-Indigenous partners. So, for example, uh, CMHA, the Manitoba Winnipeg on the mental health side, uh, you know, we've got, of course, government agencies in the background to the WHA that we're already they're already on site with the COVID-19 test site, which will be functional on, right now, looked at at least till August 31st of this year. So uh, it won't take that long to assemble the site because of the nature of the units. So we're trying to, you know, in a holistic sense, uh, be able to address any need that any of these individuals might present to us. And then in the model because it's working with them you know when they signal that they're ready that they want to make some changes in their life uh you know we'll be ready for that damon johnston joining us live on 680 cjob co-chair of thunderbird house board thank you so much for joining us we very much appreciate the time sir my pleasure you take care stay safe Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, in two minutes' time, we shall reveal our winner of our Santa Lucia Pizza $20 gift card based on your text on the fashion trends, the best and worst of the 90s, inspired by the fact that the Boston Bruins showed up for their outdoor game in Lake Tahoe, all wearing cheeseball 90s, colorful windbreakers and stuff, you know, purple and pink and all the light, crazy... Just, yeah, Fuchsia, but, lime green, all yeah. the uh, neon colors. Yeah, it looked like Peter Cottontail threw up all over them. So <laughs> very colorful. And uh, Wayner with a good one here, Greg, uh, from Crestview. Yeah, he said, MC Hammer Pants. My grandma sewed me a pair to wear at the next pre-teen dance. They were bright pink. The dance floor was lit. 92, 93 pre-dances at Buchanan Community Center. And Wayner, I think, went on to say, also uh, complete with the graffiti uh, fabric jacket with... Shoulder pads. She made it all nice. from scratch. Nice. Ooh. Very nice. That made me forget stirrup pants. Remember those? They were the oh! pants that had the string at the bottom? Oh, and yeah. Under- what was the point of that? They was were like the pre- better in my boots? I don't know. I think they were kind of the precursor to Lululemons to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. They were take on leggings and 
that sort of thing. So stir up pants. Loren, do you see Gary's text here? I do. Gary texted to say, my most vivid memory of fashion in the 90s was ties. Can't say favorite or most hated as they were both can only come up with most memorable. I was working at Sports Experts in Pobble Park and St. Vital, and we wore shirt and ties to work every day. I was addicted to Nicole Miller's crazy ties. I believe the store was the men's version of Smart Set, and every time they got a shipment of ties in to the Sports Experts, he'd have one on. Back then, these ties were $85 each. I make more now and can't imagine paying an $85 payment for a tie at this point in my life. I'm going to have to look up these Nicole Miller ties. They are a lot of money for a tie. Oh yeah. Lots of bright colors. Yeah. Loud. Lots all sorts of patterns. Like they're, they're, they're neat. I understand the, the attraction to them at the time, but they are noisy ties. So, Oh yeah. There's a lot going on. (laughs) Lots of different logos. Yeah. No, I'm out. Sorry. Sorry, When you think about the time and 85 bucks, depending on how much money you were making, boy, that was like a week's salary. Dennis is our winner. Dennis says, do you remember kangaroo shoes? Yes, I do. They actually, it uh, looks like they were first debuted in 1979 and were popular for part of the 80s. And then they resurfaced in the late 1990s. And Dennis says this one had a pocket on the outer side of the shoes for a, a spare zipper? change or a key with a zipper. That's right. He says, I found a, I had left a $50 bill in an old pair. I think they cost 25 bucks back in the day. So his dad was going to chuck him, and he said, hang on, let me check the, the, the pocket. Figures that 50 was sitting in there for two years. Dennis, congratulations. Great story. We'll get in touch with you to get you that gift card for Santa Lucia Pizza. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, over the month of February, we have been so pleased to introduce you to several different local authors who have written some tremendous children's books. Books that have featured topics like, excuse me, inclusion, residential schools, animals, and the alphabet. Yeah, and we're going to continue. We always like to feature authors here on The Start, uh, um, particularly usually in this segment because we love our conversations with them. So that will continue long after I Love to Read Month. But this book we want to introduce you to for the children's book series is actually called The Eagle Mother. And it not only follows the journey of two young birds, it brings to life the plants and animals they need to survive. It's actually the third installment in the Mothers of Sun series. And author Brett Hewson joins us now. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. I need to double check because I asked uh, our producer, Jeff Forche, to, to get the pronouncer for the Mothers of Sun series as I'm saying it, but it's actually X-S-A-N, so I don't pronounce the X at all? Yeah. Well, the X is kind of, uh, it, it represents a different sound for us, so you wouldn't say X-Sun, you would just say X-Sun. So the X-Sun <laughs> refers to the river of mist, and when you put it together with get sun Git means people of, so our nation, is, it's called people of the river of mist. Oh, okay. So that makes sense because this is connecting to the Gitsan Nation in northwest uh, interior of BC, which is where you actually grew up. And it's also where the book uh, is set, correct? So I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more about uh, growing up in BC and in this particular part of the interior. Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in a very uh, traditional family. So, you know, we had a lot of knowledge from the land. I grew up on the land with my grandparents and my parents. We spent a lot of time out there. Uh, we learned a lot about the, the ecology of our territory. And one of the things with our people is that we, we have a very deep understanding of how the, the land works and how everything is interconnected. So part of what I wanted to do with the series is not only introduce this idea to young people in a simple way, but also to introduce the idea of different species and how they, once you kind of read through the, the series, you'll actually see how all of them are connected 
and not just to the land itself, but how our people are connected to the ecosystem. So we we change ourselves to match the needs of our ecosystem, whereas currently people tend to live to try to change the world for their needs. So it's kind of introducing a different uh, a different idea to young people uh, through a combination of science and traditional knowledge. I wanted to show that parallel between science and uh, traditional knowledges. And my first book actually won the Science Writers and Communicators of Canada Award. Uh, that was the Sockeye Mother. Well, you mentioned that it's uh, everything is interconnected, and you know if one thing changes or one part of that ecosystem ecosystem changes, it can have, to use your term, Greg, cascading ramifications on so many other aspects of that ecosystem, right? Oh, it, it, most definitely. That, that's one of the things that can change everything, and one of the most important species we have. Without uh, throughout our nation, we base a lot of our our livelihoods, our governance, and our economy, and everything that we had prior to contact, we based off the life cycle of the salmon and the changing in the seasons. Because the salmon are a keystone species, and they actually are the reason that we have rainforests in British Columbia. They provide a huge amount of marine-derived nutrients to the forest to help them uh, produce large, large trees, large uh, ecology, and biodiverse lands. I have to say, I've always admired uh, the the spiritual uh, nature of the connection between the land and the air and the and the water in Indigenous cult- culture, uh, Brett. But also fascinated by a the language that you speak uh, in your in your home nation. And how would I pronounce your uh, Indigenous name if if you would indulge us? So my name uh, that I've had since I was a baby is Hetrum's Get, and that means uh, like you're standing like a man, you're standing like you're tough. But what it also refers to is Hetrum's sketch is like when animals are standing up, they're, they're standing like a man. Like if a gopher was to stand up on two legs or if a bear was to stand up on two legs, that's what my name means. So each of our names are connected to the territories, and that's one of the things that we mentioned throughout the series as well. Uh, the upcoming book we have in April actually goes into that a little bit, uh, The Frog Mother. That'll be coming out in April. But yes, as you read through the series, you kind of learn little bits about our culture and just a small bit. Like there, there's a lot more that I want to do in the future with regards to preserving our cultural knowledge. And I'm working with a lot of our knowledge keepers at home right now, working on new books for the future. Oh, it all sounds incredible. And may I just add as an aside, this is no offense to you, Brett, or to my coworker, Brett, but your name that you've had since birth is much better. I think, we, I think it... I, the meaning behind it is just, it's, it's, I am just, you know, it's, it's so too bad in so many ways that we can't carry these things on and, and have it be something that's used in daily conversation. And, you know, that's one of the things that we're starting to see. Uh, a lot of uh, young families in our, uh, throughout the different nations throughout BC, uh, and I'm sure it's like that in some nations east of us too, but I can only speak to where, where I'm from. A lot of people are starting to give their children those names. Mm-hmm. They still have to give them the, the patriarchal last name because that's how Canada operates. But uh, we, because we're matrilineal societies, we just have names. And then um, we also represent ourselves through our mother's house group, our family's house group. So we're matrilineal in that way. So it's very different. It's a totally different world. And uh, one of the reasons that I called the series Mothers of Son is I wanted to show that uh, matrilineal line through these stories. The final installment of the book, I hope to to really delve into that and 
Um, you know, those are the things that will be coming up in the future, and I hope to share with everybody. Not to get hung up on your name and the origins, is it a is it a prof- prophecy, Brett? Is it uh, based on someone's vision for your life, or or maybe a past life? How, how do you how do you get your name? Are, are are you familiar with with that whole process? Yeah, there's a there's a number of different ways here uh, in in Manitoba. It's very different in that a lot of the the nations here they have uh, names that are passed on through ceremony called spirit names. Um, where I'm from, a lot of our names, like my my name, is hundreds of years old. Uh, it was the, it was created long before contact and was related to a story of one of the hunters um, from the past. And each of the names carry stories from the land. That's the important thing. Our names they come from the land because it represents that we belong to the land, and the land does not belong to us. Nobody can own land. It's just a fictional thing made up by people. Uh, the land, we are a part of it. So that represents through our names. So my name, it represents that part of the land, something that was commemorated, a time in the past that was commemorated. And each person carries these different names. You also get names when you're born that kind of represent, uh, that's just like a regular common name. But we also have feast names. And we have names that are uh, given through ceremony for different purposes. So there's a multitude of different ways we we receive names, but one of the key things is that our names come from the land, the language comes from the land, and that's what it represents is how we revere and respect all aspects of the land itself, because that's the only reason we exist. Our guest is Brett Hewson. He is the author of The Eagle Mother, joining us for I Love to Read Month. So you grew up in B.C. How'd you end up in Manitoba, Brett? Well, um, my family's actually been tied to Manitoba since before I was born, I have a great aunt and great uncle from here, um, and then my uncle. Um, I moved over here fifteen, just over fifteen years ago. It'll be a sixteen years uh, May long weekend. Um, but I have an aunt and uncle over here. My auntie married uh, a fellow from here, a, a Cree fellow, and then I have another auntie who married an Anishinaabe fellow. So you know, I've, I've been a part of the, the families here for a long time. Um, my grandfather said that uh, my uncles could marry my aunts if they promised to keep ceremony in our life because he wanted to learn from other nations as well. So I grew up uh, being very tied to people here, tied to ceremony here. And, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a great opportunity to come over and, you know, explore different parts of the land and end up meeting my wife here. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm still here is that, you know, I found my, my love here. And, you know, you, you kind of go where the love is. Ah. I love everything you're saying about that. And, and I think the love, too, that you have for your home and for your nation in BC and, and the extension to it into your books, is it's so compelling. And I'm curious what the response is in young people. Like, first of all, what age, Brett, would you recommend read this book or this series? Well, you, my, my daughter, when I, when I wrote my first book, my, my daughter was four years old. And she just loved the artwork in there. So she enjoyed the artwork more than anything. And she could, you know, pick up quite a bit of it. Uh, my son at the time was seven, and um, he, he really enjoyed the first one. He's enjoying them more now as he's older, so he's going to be 11 this year. And I would kind of say, you, you know, I'd like to go from grade five and up. Um, that's generally where we really like the, the young people to read. But I have kind of I have fans from all age groups, actually. You know, I, I get uh, requested to go to universities to speak about the books. I get requested to go to high schools. Uh, I know it's being used for curriculum in some uh, school districts in BC as well as Ontario. 
So it's uh, it's had a really good response, and I I get amazing questions. I'm really amazed by the the you know the intelligence of a lot of the young people, and I really enjoy getting the questions from them. A lot of them are amazed because they don't know a lot of the things that are shared about the the animals and how everything's connected. And this is stuff that I grew up with, right? Like this is stuff that people at that age, at that young age, have to know. As as a gift end person, you have to know these things about the land at that age. So these are the things that I wanted to share with people, you know, at the, to, to be able to learn that, that kind of stuff. Everything in your series, the sockeye mother, the frog mother, the grizzly mother, the wolf mother. Well, mothers are so very important in your culture. Fair to say, Brett? Yeah, yeah. Like, like I was saying before, we are a matrilineal society. My name, my uh, territory privileges, my ability to harvest on our, our what we call lachip, our territory, that, that all comes from my mother, not my father. And uh, we don't take anything from our father. We can hunt and fish on our father's territory as long as he is alive, but as soon as he passes away, we have no right to do that uh, on his territory. Uh, the only way we do is if his family uh, specifically agrees to support us and continue to support his children. And that's just how our system works. That's how we were able to balance the ecosystems. Every aspect of our governance, culture, and economy was focused on sustainability of the ecosystems, and it had nothing to do with trying to progress and, and sit on mounds of wealth, like what you perceive as wealth nowadays. Our economies were focused on how much you could give to each other. And, and you go to ceremonies, they would try to outgive each other, and it would become such a competition that some of the chiefs would literally give the clothes off their back they were wearing at the feast to another family to, to show how much they could give. And it was all about giving. That's what our society was about. And that's that's a matrilineal society. So I wanted to offer that a little bit, change the narrative, because there's so much patriarchy out there in media. And I never saw myself in anything growing up. I never saw anything about me. I just saw romanticized, wrong versions of Indigenous people in places like Dances with Wolves and whatever else was thrown out there at the time. Brett Houston joining us live on 680 CJOB. The book is The Eagle Mother. You can read more on Brett and his book at cjob.com. Just Google CJOB. I love to read month, and you will find it there, including him reading some portions of the book. Brett, thank you very much for joining us this morning. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all of your time, and it was really great speaking with you all. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.